Hello and welcome to these audio recordings from Project Echo, Westwick PHN Hub, COVID-19 Pandemic Response Echo Network Series. Series 6, Session 7, it's Thursday the 2nd of September 2021. Welcome back to the network. This session's titled COVID-19 Vaccines and Teens, uh, Preparing for the Vaccine Rollout to 12 to 15 Year Olds. Well, yesterday's announcement of a shift from COVID-0 triggers a readjustment, which I think many of us have seen coming in the previous weeks. We'll be working together over the you know, first half of this session and um, in the coming days and weeks and months to collectively make sense of this shift and what it means for our work in primary care. But this morning, we're going to focus on the kids. Last week, Melbourne school students passed the grim milestone of 200 days in lockdown since the COVID-19 outbreak began, and a fair proportion of that time was spent in remote learning or homeschooling. While we all recognise the importance of this public health measure to save lives and minimise burden on the public health and hospital system, perhaps more urgently than ever comes the call to consider a life beyond lockdown for our youngest community members, as many are struggling and very few are thriving in this environment. To provide a voice to, the, to a group that often struggled to be heard, I'll put questions for this morning's discussions to the group from a passage that was written by a young vaccine um, advocate, Anhar Karim, a 14-year-old student in Year 9 at Al Nuri Muslim School in Sydney's West. What she says is this, what I and other young people want is to feel safe and informed. We need to be given the vaccine or at the very least, we need to know that we will have access to the vaccine. We need to be addressed as young adults. We need answers to many questions. What does the research say on vaccinating 12 to 15 year olds? Will we be able to get vaccinated before we go back to school? How will consent work with those aged 12 to 15? And what would occur in situations where parents are anti-vaccination but their child wants to receive the vaccine? Could children under 16 consent to being vaccinated? And finally, will life return to normal for us young adults? Well, these are some of the questions that we'll be seeking to answer as a group. And as always, we'll be considering our role in primary care in creating uh, an effective systems response that enables young people and their families and carers to receive appropriate information, advice and support to access COVID-19 vaccination in a timely way. And actually, maybe what I'll do for our panel this morning is um, throw over to you to um, provide a quick introduction um, and then we'll finish our fair housekeeping before we get underway. So, Karen Owens, hello. Good morning, Bianca. Um, I'm a GP by background, but I'm working in the Grampians Public Health Unit as a medical lead at the moment. Thanks, Karen. And I'll be giving you your GP GP update, GP HE update this morning. Thanks, Karen. Welcome back. Um, To Jane Standish, hello. Morning, everyone. I'm Jane Standish. I'm a paediatrician and I'm coming to you from this morning from Warringah Land. And um, I'm a paediatrician working across Geelong and Melbourne and joining the Vic Sis is the paediatric lead um, for Barwon. Jane, can we call it baby sick or maybe baby Vic sick? <laughs> like it or kid sick because we're not quite <laughs> like it might ob- object to our babies. But... Teens are sick? Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and hi, Jess Corfin. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, I'm a research fellow at the Murdoch Children's Research Institute in the Vaccine Uptake Group and so my specialty is more around vaccine communication. Great, thank you. And it's really nice to have you been looking forward to um, moving on to some themes of um, uh, misinf- uh, sorry, hesitancy communication. So that's what we'll be doing in our second half hour this morning. And uh, you know Kate Graham, but hi, Kate. Good morning, everyone. How are you all? Um, I, for those of you who don't know me, I'm a GP in Western Victoria. I'm also the lead clinical editor for the um, COVID health pathways across Victoria and Tasmania. 
and I'm the COVID clinical advisor for Westwick PHN. Great. Thank you. All right. So um, our program this morning. So we're going to um, think about our regular routine um, learning outcomes for ECHO with that uh, COVID peak setting still in place. What does it mean for us in regards to um, COVID, non-COVID, fever and infections uh, and respiratory symptoms, continuing care provision and vaccination. Agenda this morning, we'll start with Kate to provide those uh, updates and um, there's quite a lot to update upon this morning. So there's some um, really detailed slides in there as well and we'll, of course, be circulating those slide deck afterwards. Um, and, yeah, welcome back to Karen Aarons who will be providing the Grampians Public Health Update. Jane Standish will now um, provide now our overview of vaccine and teens um, and plans for local uh, specialist services. And then we'll move on to Jess Kaufman to provide us with some really great um, tools and tips for um, and really describing those various positions around vaccine hesitancy, but communications that help support um, vaccine acceptance and uptake. And we'll finish, as always, with uh, Linda Govan to provide the PHN update and tell us what's um, changing in the space of um, the Commonwealth provision. I'm going to kick off with um, just a quick bit of data. So um, thanks to Linda and Andy for sending this through. So now the data is coming to us broken down by LGAs. And so you'll see the LGA. And I think it's maybe I'm, I'm anticipating it's worth us really thinking about LGAs and really being aware of our LGAs just in the case that um, we do start to think about um, LGA-specific health advice. Um, wow. So I thought let's get to know them. And so the LGAs there on the left, uh, we've popped in the council seat. And um, I'll continue to update this. So apologies if I've not completely um, got this right, but I wanted to kind of add in our at shows as well so that we can bear in mind um, who this, the local lachos are for each LGA. Um, it gives you the breakdown of, of how we're going with dose one and two, and I've highlighted the uh, lead performers. So Queenscliff's uh, um, charging out front. Uh, they've certainly already um, passed that 70% first dose, as it has Torquay and Surf Coast, um, and uh, not not far behind uh, that, that, well, for Queenscliff goal of complete dose. So that's really good to see, interesting. Um, I've popped in a little, you know, consider there for border bubbles and vac vaccination and care. And I think Kate will kind of um, talk a little bit about this and how we might need to think about those communities um, sitting on the border in terms of what's happening with their restrictions and access to healthcare. Um, and then the Grampians, PHU, uh, we, who, where have we got out leading? We've got Yari Ambiak uh, and Warwick Nabil um, doing um, really well. Hepburn and Dalesford, shout out to the Springs Medical Crew and Ararat uh, really doing very, performing very strongly and not far again behind that 70% first dose, which is an interesting new trigger point for us to be thinking about. Um, of course, it's across the state, but it's going to be interesting to see how we're performing um, locally. So um, that's there for, I guess, something that we might kind of keep updating and watching over time is our telly. I'm going to hand over to you now, Kate Graham. Thanks. Good morning, everyone. It's um, been a bit of a head spin week in terms of what's been happening um, both statewide, nationally and locally as well. So I just thought I'd sort of give a bit of an overview, talk again a bit about um, what we discussed last week, which was that real infection control in primary care and what we've got some control over. So I think that um, some of the issues that we're going to face is that inevitably at some point um, we are going to sort of face COVID within our environments um, and how we actually can manage that um, safely and effectively without meaning that we're out uh, of action as a general practice for a long period of time. 
Um, I think one of the things that um, we talked about last week was the vaccination of staff. And I think that that's something that sort of all practices should be thinking about um, in terms of the risk to staff if they're not vaccinated and plans for non-vaccinated staff um, if you sort of find in conjunction with sort of medical defence um, that business insurers that you're not able to mandate for certain staff um, that vaccination is, as we know, a good idea. Um, so I think I'll just go back to that, sorry, that previous slide just quickly. Um, so some of the other things that we sort of needed to look at um, in terms of this real sort of COVID peak setting, um, we're still at COVID peak. Um, while we're at COVID peak at the moment as a statewide kind of level, um, within that COVID peak, I think we're going to reach peak year times as well. So I think that there's that sort of forwards thinking. Um, I think that previously when we've looked at this last year, it's been a situation that we've thought would be a short-term thing, whereas now we're in the place of sort of having to develop some long-term strategies. At present, we really want um, people to be ensuring they've got their work permits and that daily attestations and screening are taking place. While that's not going to eliminate everyone from um, getting into the clinic who may be sort of during their infectious period, it really reduces things significantly. And I think, you know, if you're working on a sort of um, combined telehealth face-to-face -face method, I think one of the things that you can do for your patients is think about how you're actually structuring your appointment books. And that sort of is something that does require some advanced planning. But if you can structure it so that you've got telehealth alternating with face-to-face, -face, you're reducing the number of people in waiting rooms. And that's going to reduce the number of people exposed should there be a potential COVID case within your environment. Um, just revisiting all the practice um, management kind of tips and things, we've got um, extensive information on health pathways on that. Um, elective surgery testing is one of the things I'll just mention here that we may come across. Uh, the MBS um, item numbers are still in place for that. Um, and if you click on that link when you get the slide deck, that takes you to the MBS item numbers um, for testing so that people don't get a Medicare, um, not a Medicare, a bill from pathology. So I'll just go to the next slide now. So in terms of our risk response, I know that um, we looked at the furloughing documents previously. This is sort of an associated document that um, is really is sort of a public health kind of driven thing, but I thought it's a really good option for giving practices an idea of what their cleaning requirements are, depending on how long it's been since somebody's been in the practice. Um, and so what we would want is to sort of minimise expected exposures um, so that if one of them was positive, then you're really only limited to your high-touch surface clean and disinfect. So that's sort of where you're, you've got your sort of full PPE on. You may be seeing people in a car park or sort of an outdoors marquee. Your exposure site risk here is likely to be a lot less um, than for somebody who's been sitting in a waiting room, coughing extensively um, with other people without a mask for an extensive period of time. So I think that they're things to sort of just think about. They're not um, things that, you know, we would be in, um, putting in place ourselves or determining what, we're, what exposure site we are. That's where we'd be contacting the LPHUs. But it does give you that idea of um, the fact that 
you know, you may be faced with a sort of an exposure risk that is a significant exposure risk. Sometimes they're unavoidable. If you have a patient who's very unwell in a practice and you are required to provide that emergency care until an ambulance turns up, then, you know, you may have to shut for that deep clean. But it's just reducing those other circumstances that I think is really important from a practice point of view. So next slide. I think, and this is just, again, that PPE guidance for those COVID peak settings. Um, and I think just sort of being aware that the um, PPE document that's in the standard PPE um, online from the Department of Health is not sort of um, relevant to the peak setting because any tier two low risk suspected COVID patients, everyone is high risk suspected or like everyone sort of moves into that same um, PPE guidance as a high risk suspected. So um, for general sort of consults, you may want to be doing the um, sort of full PPE if you're in an area that you feel is at higher risk. Um, but also, sorry, I'm having an incursion of speaking of paediatrics, it's a paediatric morning here. Um, so I think what you may want to be doing in general practice is sort of those kind of things or making sure that um, you're adhering to at minimum the surgical mask, eye protection um, and really, really intense screening. So I think one of the other things that we are looking at at the moment is fit testing. Um, I know we've had some updates from um, the Barwon LPHU on that. So I think what we have the ability to do in general practice is the fit checking. So it's how to fit that P2N95 mask. There's great videos available there. Um, the Infection Prevention Helpline is a really good resource for practices as well if there are any queries as to what you should be doing. Um, and I think that even if you have been fit tested for a mask formally previously, if you've had any sort of significant weight gain or weight loss or in pregnancy, um, it is required to sort of refit masks just due to changes in facial shape. Um, so I think that was... Yep, so with our Commonwealth guidance, um, we're in a stage now where everybody um, except that 12 to 15 year old group is eligible currently. Um, and then within a fortnight, we will then have that eligibility opening up for that 12 to 15 year age group. And that's where as practices, um, we do need to be sort of thinking about how we can prioritise groups within that setting. Um, so I think that for some areas, you're going to have great coverage um, from clinics, from the Commonwealth vaccination centres. In other areas, I think um, if you know that you've got sort of populations who may be more vulnerable, I think that's where it's a really good opportunity to be able to contact the vaccination teams at the local public health units and see how you can work collaboratively together. One example of um, sort of some of the issues that people face is within the border bubbles where people are not able to leave to get vaccinated. A lot of the modelling and thinking about getting to our 70% coverage um, nationally is based on the fact that people are willing to travel sort of in regional areas 60 minutes or up to 120 minutes to get a vaccine, um, which is not possible currently for people within those border regions because if they leave, they're then not allowed out um, over the border again. So that's a significant barrier. And it's something to sort of also consider in your telehealth models and making sure that patients, if you're seeing them 
um, or you know that sort of specialist appointments may take people out of the border bubble, um, thinking about other ways to access them. Um, VCE vaccination um, is obviously a key topic this week. Um, there's the state government um, booking blitz, um, but also the local public health unit vaccination teams will be um, working and communicating with schools around the region. Um, Linda may talk about this a little bit more as well, um, but we've also got two aged care hubs um, for uh, aged care staff being opened up within the Barwon and Ballarat areas um, to be able to sort of facilitate vaccination for those staff that we know need to have that first dose in very, very soon. So health pathways wise, we've just been working on updating everything else. Um, so I think that, um, you know, that's, there's been lots of stuff. Moderna's coming on board. There's a new Moderna training module available if you wanted to learn some more about Moderna, um, just in terms of we may not be giving it in uh, general practice initially, but that doesn't mean we won't be answering 100 questions about it from all patients. Sorry, I'll just go back to the last slide because I forgot about these ones as well. Um, this is another really important conversation that we're having in general practice is people asking for vaccination certificates. And I think this is something to sort of really work with um, practice reception staff as well, because they may get phone calls sort of asking for vaccination certification. And I think if you can have some information there as to how people can access their own vaccination information, it gives them some health autonomy, um, it gives them control over things, and it also takes one job away from our already overworked team. Um, but I think familiarising yourself with how to access the AIR online is really important for those people who may not have access to technology at home or who don't have the appropriate sort of uh, level of computer literacy to be able to uh, navigate setting up MyGov or all those kind of things, which we know can be quite a challenge. Um, so in the future, this is going to be really important for us, um, looking at vaccination certifications. Um, and we know I've been liaising with their Commonwealth and State this week, um, just to ensure that people who have had COVID as well are covered in terms of an immunity certification as well, because although we talk about vaccine certifications, um, the current advice is still uh, from ATAGI that people who have had a COVID infection uh, may defer their vaccination for six months because we know that they get really good immunity from that. And I think particularly at the moment when we don't have a lot of vaccinations, um, that is an important consideration. We are, however, getting lots and lots more over the next month. So it's going to be a busy time for everyone as more and more people come on board, more pharmacies come on board. Um, and that's that's something sort of also as well to familiarise yourself with what's available in your local area so that if you're booked out, you know where else you can send people to be able to get the vaccinations they need. So thank you very much. Um, I think one other thing that I'll just pop in the chat later that's just out of interest it's just in the addendum for the um, Doherty report modelling. And it re, um, on page 16 of it, you'll just have to look through, but there's a really great graphic that shows um, the transmission potential between certain age groups. And it really focuses in on why we need to um, work with our teenagers and young people about getting vaccinated because they're really the groups in which transmission spread is highest. And if we can reduce this by reducing infections in this age group, um, 
it's going to help all of us. So mm. thank you. And I'll hand back to you guys to take over and let us know more. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Now, um, so, so for those um, slides that will come out, I've put as many hyperlinks in there as possible. So they are very content rich and um, and hopefully they'll be a useful resource to you. So they're, they're all hyperlinked. Over to you, Karen Ahrens. Thank you. Thanks, Bianca. Good morning, everyone. So I'm um, dialing in from Wurundjeri and um, Jaja Warung country um, this morning. And I was just thinking about the topic today. And so we've we've got not someone quite as small as yours. We've got a year 12 here. And um, so just thinking about how that's impacting, um, as you said, Bianca. And I just wanted to tell a cute story, which was yesterday, all the teachers on foot by car did deliveries to the houses of all the year 12s in lockdown in our region with a little hug pack. I don't have it here to show you, but it's a hug pack. So I thought that was a lovely um, sort of representation of how hard it is for the year 12s at the moment. So um, what's happening in the GPHU, Grampians Public Health Unit? So we're continuing with our um, case contracting um, function. That's probably where we're focusing the majority of our efforts. Um, no cases still obviously in the Grampians region, although sort of every day or two sort of behind the scenes, we do get scares and we start to lift the gears a little bit and go, oh goodness, this is going to be a case. Um, so we get a little bit of practice and then we down downgrade that. So that's keeps us on our toes. Um, so mainly at the moment with that function, we're supporting Metro. So obviously that's where all the cases are, particularly in the Western region. Um, so we're managing about 50 positive cases at the moment and we've got a range of exposure sites. So we get delivered those or sort of allocated those from central regions. We've got about 40 exposure sites ranging from about tier 1A to down to tier 3. And I was thinking from a GP perspective yesterday, so I was required to, tier, we need to tier those. And one of the things that's really useful when we're tiering a site um, is knowing what exactly what's happened and it really highlights this was a general practice that i needed to tear yesterday and it really highlights the importance of the checking in the attestation attestations the wearing of masks etc because this particular gp we teed him as a 1b which meant he's out of action for 14 days but they were able to call and have a conversation and say well this is actually what happened and these are the times and these are the exact situation and i was able to downgrade him to a tier two so that's huge because he can go back to work tomorrow once he's um, got a negative test. So I just thought I'd throw that in as a little story um, relevant to GPs. Um, so moving on, the other area obviously is vaccination. So the vaccinations across the region, as you saw from the slides, are going from strength to strength. I think the Ballarat um, uh, unit delivered almost just under 1,000 in one day last week. So that's our record at the moment. So we're going to try and get over the, the 1,000 at some stage. Obviously, it's opened up now to the 18s up to 59s. Um, for Pfizer, not a lot of AstraZeneca action happening in that region now that they can have Pfizer. So it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of that, that stock. Um, and yeah, as Kate mentioned, the team, the vaccination team is certainly looking at prioritisation. So where in the regions these we need to be targeting what groups, etc. because supply will be an ongoing issue as time goes on. Hopefully as time goes on, it won't be, um, but it certainly still is a consideration at the moment. Um, and then moving towards, obviously the state um, run centres aren't doing the 12 to 15s at this stage, but certainly looking towards that space. 
Um, the other thing that we've done recently is yesterday our uh, team leader extraordinaire, Megan Thomas, she seems to be our resident expert in setting up testing centres or pop-up testing. Um, she drove out to Nil um, with her team yesterday morning and set up a testing centre in Nil. Now don't panic, there's no cases out there that I know of, um, but it was to do with the testing of the truckies. So my understanding is that poor old Horsham's copying it a little bit because the truckies, there's a bit of a backlog as far as um, getting to getting over the border and so they've set up a, a testing site at Neil um, in anticipation of the state taking over that but just sort of as a stopgap in the meantime so I haven't heard back from her how many they did yesterday and when they got set up but she's a whiz so they will have done lots hopefully and taken the load off and also reduce the infection risk in Horsham because you don't want lots and lots of people that shouldn't be there um, along that highway and last but not least I wanted to mention um, Shepparton so you've probably obviously you know you obviously no Shep's a hotspot at the moment and there's a team that's gone in there to do a lot of research and do some recordings and stuff to train at all the other LPHUs in the region to go what worked what didn't work uh, and that'll include how they included their GPs so maybe we can look at that in the future um, Bianca to go hey what did we learn from that um, and I think that's probably Oh, the only other thing that's sort of highlighted from a GP perspective particularly is with our work in the metro, it's, it's becoming a bit of a struggle. And I agree, Kate, we're seeing certainly anecdotally the spread among the young people um, is a real problem, um, part, partly um, from an understanding and partly from a sort of a, a blasé potentially. That's probably maybe harsh for some of them, but for some it's true. And tapping, we're starting to try and tap into those Metro GPs as a trusted source of information for their young people. And so we're sort of going to um, think about how we might reach out better to the GPs in the, in, certainly in the Grampians region, should we have an outbreak to see how we might utilize you as trusted sources of, of um, information and health information in particular. So that's about it, Bianca, I think. Thanks, Karen. I just wanted to quickly um, put forward a question from last week's asking about kind of note keeping. And I know um, Kate's addressed this in the chat, but thinking about that vignette of um, your GP that you were downgrading, um, how important was that documentation of what they were wearing in their records to help form your assessment? Oh, it made the difference. So this particular doctor, and so, I mean, I know there's guidelines and it was um, as far as, you know, the tiering, we've got a risk calculator that we use that includes things like duration of exposure, has transmission occurred there, mask wearing, et cetera, et cetera. But there's always nuances, nuanced um, ones. And so this one, this this fellow the doctor was able to say he had a face shield on the whole time. He had a mask um, and there was no, it wasn't a, it was a simple consultation and quite a brief one. So they checked in, they knew exactly when the consultation started and finished, which most people probably would because computer systems tend to do that with your notes, um, unless you're like me and you leave them to the end of the day. But um, so, but so having that knowledge, but at least when they left from a billing point of view, we could check that yes. and see it was really brief um, and had worn a mask for the whole time and there was no examination um, because it wasn't that nature of that consultation. So I was able, that was that was really, really helpful. Lee Meekin um, then backs it up with wanting clarity around a surgical guard masks and goggles enough or do we need n95 yeah. and face shields? and i, I knew as i said the case that i was going to get asked that question and i don't i was thinking do i really want to tell the case because i don't have the specific answer to that question no, that's okay let, let me come back to you on that again that's why i use the word nuanced because i was trying to cover myself because i knew someone would ask that um it it depends look 
the best is a face shield. See, what's normally going to happen is you're going to be wearing full PPE if it's a potential case, you know, oh, I would hope so. In so much as you've got your hot zone area, it's a respiratory patient. Um, and that's, that's fine. You're sorted there. This, the, the tricky ones are the ones that are non-respiratory, treated and have had their attestations and no reason to think that they're positive, and you're treating them in your normal setting, and then the next day they get a test for some reason because they've been to an exposure site and it comes back positive. They're the tricky ones. So if you're wearing an N95 and a face shield um, and it's a really short duration, um, which I'm not encouraging because obviously we want to have quality medical encounters, but this particular one had been really short. Um, so I can't answer your question specifically. I'm not sure who asked it. Sorry, but That's thank okay. you for the question. Yeah. Um, but I, what I'll do is I'll go away and I'll try and gather a little bit more information, but I suspect the answer will be it depends. So that's mm. not super helpful. Sorry. No, that's okay, Karen. One of the it's other really things. nice to yeah, keep, um, okay. keep uh, thinking about the variables. Yeah, sorry, Kate, go for it. I was just going to just going to say that one of the other things to sort of really keep in mind is that in general practice, when you're working in the respiratory zones or hot zones, you've got your donning and doffing area, you're kind of in that mindset of keeping your PPE safe um, and keeping yourself safe. You know, you're sort of thinking about every single thing that you touch, whereas in your standard clinic room, um, that's something that you don't think about quite as much. And I'd sort of really encourage that sort of change in mindset as every changes within the community so that you do sort of have procedures in place and you're reminding yourself you don't have that same sort of oversight of somebody checking you, donning and doffing. Um, but I'd really encourage some of that mindfulness about sort of where things are in um, desk. Face shields are great because you don't touch your face, um, but just having some of those procedures in place, making sure that everything is where you need it, the sanitizers there, all those kind of things are going to help you actually make sure that even if you're wearing the right PPE, that it's actually effective. Thank you. Yeah, now, I'm great. having flashbacks to 2020 when we almost had a dedicated um, person to answer PPE questions at the end. Do keep your PPE questions coming through in the chat. We'll now manage them in the chat. And, Kate, depending on what's happening with um, with the baby Grahams, if you're able to do a scoop up of some of the interesting points that come through in the chat, maybe at the end as well, we could also do that as well, Karen. Uh, if you're sticking around, maybe we could um, do some of that. All right. So we're running behind. I'm going to kind of move it forward. Thanks so much for that update. And it's going to be really interesting to keep these conversations going, um, uh, especially between us in primary care and yourselves in the GPHU. So thank you so much, Karen. So as we, as we have to change practice, uh, as we're shifting gears, we've been preparing for it for a long time. Um, but let's now really put that into play. All right, over to you, Jane Standish. Thank you. We're going to shift into our team focus. Thank you. Thanks, Bianca. And hi, everybody. Um, I'm just going to, um, as sort of introduced myself before, I'm a pediatrician working um, in Geelong and at RCH and I'm taking on the, um, the whatever we're going to call it, KidSIS role um, for Barwon region and wanted to take this opportunity to say hi, introduce myself so you've got a face if you're um, calling up or sending an email through or whatever and also brief overview of what we're seeing with COVID in kids and some of the um, aspects of um, vaccination in the younger group um, that we'll just whip through fairly quickly. Um, so we're, you know, looking back to data from last year with the local data, um, you know, numbers of COVID in cases in children were, were the biggest in Victoria across Australia. Um, 
but even in, even through the whole of um, that year, only 44 children across Australia were admitted with COVID. Um, and the majority of them would have been in Victoria, although some, st some states had um, a policy to admit everybody. So I guess those numbers needed to be taken in that consideration. Um, but from the RCH data with that follow-up um, of the Melbourne case through the second wave, um, really low numbers of symptomatic or significantly sick children um, and really good recovery. So not no one had long COVID. Everybody was symptom-free at their final review and really small numbers having any post-acute symptoms at all um, will keep moving. And similarly, out of the UK with much larger numbers, so this was an epidemiological study where they... Um, collected data from over 250,000 families, um, but really usually a short symptomatic infection and mostly mild um, and small numbers of post-acute symptoms in young people. So that was children, um, uh, I think, five to 17 years of age for that study. And we'll keep moving. Um, with the onset of Delta, um, and in the changing vaccination landscape, we are seeing higher rates of infection in children and in a lot of the outbreaks around at the moment, it's more than 20% of the total infection numbers, um, but it's still mostly a mild infection, mild illness in children. Um, and broadly, you know, across the UK and India where they've had big numbers, um, no increase in ICU admissions or paediatric deaths um, compared with earlier waves of, as a proportion. Um, the US data is that there are higher rates of paediatric admissions and ICU admissions and trying to understand why that is and why it's different from elsewhere and wondering about um, the role that um, co-infection with particularly RSV or other infections might be playing in that. So that's looking like it, it does make things a little bit worse. Um, informal data from around Australia at the moment um, looking at numbers, there's more than 300 active cases of COVID in children in Victoria at the moment um, and around about the 2,000 mark in New South Wales. And most of them are well and in the community. Um, and up to August that it, from the adolescent group um, of, of those with COVID, uh, less than 3% admitted and less than 1% needing ICU, really small numbers at the pointy end, which is great. Um, seeing some of the clinical syndromes that are presenting, there are case reports of croup that are sometimes um, a bit resistant to adrenaline if needed. So that's just worth keeping in mind um, if you're seeing kids with croup in your practice um, as you're arranging them to go elsewhere, if they're at that pointy end of croup. Um, I'd still give the adrenaline, but also be aware that um, there haven't been any uh, adverse outcomes from that, but just um, sort of refractory cases of croup reported in small numbers, um, some pneumonitis and a small number of that post-acute um, multi-system inflammatory um, change that's associated. And the other thing to note um, and sort of relevant for if numbers increase in Victoria in, in the adult population is in Sydney, they've got a home in the hospital where they've got about two wards full of children who aren't really sick enough to need admission, but their parents are too sick to look after them. So they're being looked after in hospital, um, which is hopefully not the way that we'll manage if that occurs in Victoria, but it's pretty striking the um, 
you, there's a whole, if you want to look further into it, a, um, I think they've got a whole website and page dedicated to home in the hospital in Sydney. Um, and looking at what's going on and it's sort of alluding to what other people have mentioned earlier, that it's really turning into a disease of the unvaccinated parts of the community and this um, sort of striking um, graph that has been produced looking at the proportion of cases in the younger part of the population um, and contrasting in the green there with the um, vaccination These rates. The unvaccinated yep. age, like young. Yeah, so on the left, um, there's sort of 10-year age groups starting from zero to nine at the left and moving across. And um, and the darker green is two doses of vaccine and the paler green is one dose of vaccine. So um, moving through. So that puts it into context of why we're vaccinating children or adolescents at this point. Um, and at the moment, what we've got for this age group is the Pfizer. Um, so even though it's a mild disease, mostly for these children, um, and deaths have stayed low around the world in all settings. Uh, there are still significant benefits for the individual. Um, it's a safe and effective vaccine for young people. Um, so the phase three study with the Pfizer um, of about 2012 to 15 year olds um, had this, you know, 75% efficacy after dose one and by seven days after dose two, close to 100%. Um, and the effectiveness data coming out where people, where settings have had the immunisation in that younger age group for a while, so um, Israel, um, 16 to 18-year-olds, 98% protection against symptomatic infection and against hospitalisation in that younger group. So certainly that, um, that aid those uh, words, um, certainly that individual benefit for those young people and remembering particularly those who are at increased risk, um, including young people and adults with developmental disability, learning disability, where the rates are strikingly higher for morbidity and mortality. Um, also impact for the broader population, as we've just heard about the younger adults and um, adolescents being part of that spread, which you can see when you see the caseload, and then they're going to be able to transmit it between themselves and um, to their households um, and to protect those that are more vulnerable around them in the younger and older age groups. And hopefully it'll also lead to reduced um, interruptions to schooling, education, social and extracurricular activities um, and the flow on effects for mental health and parents being able to go to work and all those good things. Um, the risks are really similar to what you would have already been assessing for, um, for adult population. Um, the local and systemic adverse effects have been mostly mild, resolved within two days, injection site being the most common. Um, and then the pericarditis, myocarditis, which data does suggest from a number of sources around the world, a causal association with mRNA vaccines, um, but the mechanism remains unclear. Um, and there's not been any identified risk factors um, and still pretty low numbers post-immunisation. It's usually, um, it, it is, you can go on to the next slide there. Um, so mostly in under 30-year-olds, but particularly males in the late teens, 
Um, most common after the second dose and majority of those are in the seven days post-dose um, and a range of presentations. But um, as you'd expect with any um, presentation with that pericarditis or myocarditis syndromes um, and mostly mild self-limiting um, and supportive care. So in terms of management, it's pretty individualised um, and assessed with um, the range of bloods, ECG, um, echo, and in some cases, further imaging is done. Um, and generally, if there's a troponin rise or significant symptoms, um, admitted for observation and supportive care. Um, and the kinds of things they're looking at for management include non-steroidals, coltrazine and steroids, all stuff you're probably familiar with from these conversations with the adult um, population um, and the advice to avoid high-intensity sport until symptom-free and normalised cardiac function afterwards. Um, this is just that's um, small on the slide, and I apologise for that, but that's from the ATAGI recommendation in terms of people with a history of cardiac conditions and mostly to highlight um, that for the majority of people who've had a cardiac history, that it's still advised and safe to proceed with immunisation. Um, we've got two um, uh, paediatric cardiologists who visit Geelong um, and see children down there as outreach, and they've um, sort of looked at their patient lists and there's no one on their patient list who they don't recommend goes ahead and has a vaccine, and they're going to provide letters um, to help with that um, in terms of advising that it's safe and recommended to proceed with immunisation for those young people. Um, so in terms of what we're up to with the Bowen um, paediatric BICSIS, we're really building on what Callum and his team have already um, put together and established so well. And it's very early days in our establishment because as everything's moving fairly quickly. Um, I'm really happy to chat um, and we will hopefully have some extra team members coming on board soon um, and we'll let you know who they are when they're there. Um, Safe Vic, um, VicSIS broadly is moving to um, centralised referrals. So that's not just for the paediatric arm, that's going to be for everybody. Um, and more on that will come out when it's finalised, but they're going to centralise referrals um, and, and they'll be triaged in, up at Safe Vic and then um, sent out to the various sites. Um, we're going to be running a clinic for pre and post immunisation consults um, and working with the ward for planning admissions under observation or with sedation for those who need it for immunisations um, and working really closely with the immunisation um, and public health unit about uh, ways to get vaccines out into the community and supporting the community-based immunisations, including all of you. Um, I've put in some links to some resources that I find really handy through the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, which you're probably all very well aware of already. Um, and also there's a um, RCH podcast. There's an episode it, it put out in early August, which is Anthea Rhodes speaking with Margie Danchen as a vaccine um, specialist about the um, COVID vaccine in young people, which might be a good one for families to listen to if they are interested um, that's it from me. Great. Thanks, Jane. Now, there's a couple of questions in the chat. Keep keep them coming through because we'll hope to have a little bit of time to puzzle some kind of um, questions and vignettes. Over to you, Jess Kaufman. 
Hi. Um, my talk is pretty pretty brief today, so hopefully um, I'll sort of whiz through it and then we can get to the, the next bit or the vignettes, as you were mentioning. Um, you can go to the next slide. So basically, uh, as all of you would have these conversations all the time about childhood vaccines, you've been having the conversations all the time about the adult vaccines for COVID, so none of this is news to you. But I guess just to highlight sort of the, the range of positions that people have on vaccines. And I guess with the COVID adolescent vaccines and child vaccines in particular, we might be seeing a mismatch of where people sit on this spectrum, or it might be sort of different from where they were um, for their own vaccine. So we don't have a huge amount of data coming through yet around the intentions to vaccinate young people. Um, we did sort of uh, have a number of studies earlier in the year, and it does look like over time, the intention to vaccinate young people is actually going down a bit. And I think that's potentially as it becomes more real, as it becomes an actual option. Um, so at the moment, I think some unpublished data that we've seen, it's sort of around 40% of parents are saying, yes, they're very likely to vaccinate their children or, or young people, um, which means, you know, that's quite a big difference from the adult population intentions and, and uptake. Um, I think what you're probably going to encounter first is actually people on the other end of the spectrum, this demanding side of the spectrum, and that might be young people themselves um, and parents who are really quite frightened, have seen sort of some sensationalized stories, particularly with that data coming out of the US, and have a lot of concerns um, about COVID and really, really want to get their children vaccinated. So I guess the first thing to identify here is where, when you sit down with someone in a consultation, sort of figuring out where they are at, where they sit in this spectrum, if they have concerns, um, if they're really agitated about getting the vaccine, and then sort of tailoring your communication approach to suit that particular issue with that parent. Um, you can go to the next slide. So we know, again, most of the data that we have about COVID vaccines and intention and concerns and things like that is more about the adult vaccines, but it's very, very likely that the concerns about the child or adolescent vaccines are going to be the same. And it's concerns about vaccine safety, concerns about the long-term effects, concerns about serious reactions. Um, and particularly with the kids, I think there might be some, uh, some people concerned about the necessity, you know, or some people not thinking that it's necessary um, to vaccinate kids. Well, of course, as, as I've said, you're going to get some very strongly on the other end of that spectrum. Um, and of, you know, worries that the vaccine has been developed too quickly, all of those kinds of issues. But I think from what we know about childhood vaccine hesitancy generally, which is normally the main area where we're sort of, um, you know, digging deep into how people feel about vaccines and things like that, we know that people have... Um, are sort of more um, uh, reluctant to make decisions for their child that may carry risk as opposed to maybe decisions for themselves. So again, the approach that you have with someone who maybe was very willing to get the vaccine for themselves, it might be quite different when you're talking to them about actually vaccinating their children. Um, this slide, this bit of the slide on the right is from a National Center for Immunization Research and Surveillance study that was looking at sort of motivating factors. And I think, again, these are from adult vaccination for COVID, but I think are probably going to carry through pretty clearly. So, you know, if, if people perceive a high risk of developing COVID, so we see generally intention goes up in the outbreak situations, like in New South Wales and Victoria. Um, 
you know, confidence in the vaccine safety and effectiveness. That really comes from communicating clearly what the evidence says about the safety and effectiveness. And I think since this is a newer sort of part of the, the rollout, people may have not been exposed to as much of the data about how effective or how safe these vaccines are for children. So you might be um, having to kind of focus on that in your discussions. Um, trust in the vaccine development process. I think we're reiterating to people really strongly that one of the reasons, for instance, that the vaccines are not yet available for younger children is because we are respecting and, and carrying out um, really strong safety uh, and, and testing procedures. I think you can sort of emphasize that we don't want to rush anything, just as we did with the, the adult vaccines, and we're collecting data and we're monitoring safety, and that these vaccines will not be released to the public until we are confident that they're safe. Um, that's maybe one approach that might um, be worth uh, using when you're speaking with someone in particular who's in that sort of demanding category. Um, role models, I think it's really helpful to see adults getting vaccinated. That might help with kids, but we don't have that many sort of role models, positive uh, examples of children being vaccinated yet. To, to act on, on their peers. But I think that will start to happen, particularly if we start to vaccinate whole cohorts of kids um, moving forward into you know, year 12 and things like that. Um, and of course, these other things sort of, you know, getting a recommendation from a healthcare provider is like number one driver of vaccination across the lifespan, as you know. So um, making a strong recommendation is probably gonna be the biggest um, input into whether people go on to vaccinate their kids. So you can go into the next one. So these are really uh, the key recommendation, uh, key communication strategies, and this is derived from research around childhood vaccine communication, um, maternal vaccine communication. So pretty large body of research, um, and essentially it's what you, I'm sure you are doing already, but just to sort of reiterate some of these really good points. Um, starting out, assuming that people have questions and concerns, um, this is definitely going to be the case with the adolescent vaccines. Um, asking them to share all of their concerns before you start going in and correcting things or answering things so that you get a sense of sort of what is their biggest concern and you can maybe prioritize the conversation around that and sort of set an agenda so the conversation doesn't go forever. Um, bearing in mind with adolescents and their parents, you probably need to be directing this kind of um, question finding or concern finding mission to both of them separately because we're going to be dealing with two people who, while the adult might be, you know, consenting the child, um, you know, as that uh, quote earlier um, um, from the young person said, like they really need to be involved and, and comfortable with the decision as well. Um, acknowledging that the concerns are very normal and then really focusing on sort of sh sharing information from the reliable sources that people have now, um, you know, sort of come to trust around safety and effectiveness. Um, it's a good idea to avoid over reassurance, that's been the case throughout the pandemic because the information changes, because we know that we're basing information, basing these recommendations off of relatively short periods of information. You know, you don't want to be caught out in a situation where you're providing sort of too much confidence that everything is going to be 100% safe and no, no side effects and that kind of thing. Um, and then, of course, reinforcing motivations that are that are unique to or um, important to the people that you are speaking to. What is relevant to them that would make them want to get vaccinated? Um, focusing on disease severity, but Keeping that in perspective with young people, as I said, again, like there's a lot of um, concern and fear around Delta and kids. And I think making sure that that is um, realistic 
but still emphasizing that the vaccine does, you know, protect children and, and that that is helpful, um, particularly because we're going to see families who can vaccinate one child and not another yet. And so we don't want to be creating a situation where they're terrified for the younger one in order to vaccinate, you know, to motivate vaccination for the older one. Um, make that strong recommendation help people figure out where to go to get it. Obviously, if you're doing it at your site, that's not so much of an issue. Um, and leave that conversation open. I suspect with the adolescent vaccines or even the younger vaccines, this is gonna be a multi-session conversation for a lot of parents who are, are more on the fence or are more waiting, waiting to see how things pan out. Uh, next slide, please. So that's uh, the link on the bottom is um, for sharing knowledge about immunization, which is a great resource for uh, supporting conversations about childhood vaccines more generally. That's the website. It's been developed by Professor Julie Leesk and a number of other people, including myself. And we um, there's resources on there, not so much about COVID, but about having those conversations about identifying where someone sits on that hesitancy spectrum and sort of tailoring your approach to that particular level of hesitancy. Um, and there's a training module as well, if you're particularly interested in, in doing some communication training around communicating about vaccines. Um, but the things that are on this slide are really just um, a number of the issues that you kind of need to weigh up, particularly for the COVID vaccines. This is much more of an informed choice situation than maybe you know recommending a measles vaccine. People need to be able to work through their decisions and what is important to them. And these are all of the elements that you can help um, provide information on and make sure people are considering when they're when they're weighing up the decision about whether or not to vaccinate. Um, and it includes things like if they can't vaccinate now, what are the alternative things that they can do? What are some things that give them some um, agency to protect, you know, their younger kids, um, considering protection, both indirect and direct, um, sharing whatever the latest data is, effectiveness and um, efficacy data, if you, if you have access to that, making sure people are aware of, of, you know, the minor, but also the serious side effects, and then understanding sort of where their personal values fit in terms of vaccination and whether this is sort of aligned, vaccinating their young person is aligned with that or, or not. That was really rash. That's literally everything that I had in my slides because I wanted to make sure you had a minute to talk about examples, but very happy to talk about any more of that in detail. Thanks so much, Jess. <laughs> All right, we'll quickly go to the vignette. So that concludes the panel presentation for this session. We'll bring you any other snippets that we can, but come along and join the discussion next week. Um, I'd like to now throw a request to Matt Dixon and Linda Govan to bring us an update on um, where you can get fit, uh, what's happening with fit testing and checking. And we'll close. Um, thank you. Linda, I'll go first. Yep, thanks, Matt. Yeah, cool. Um, so I just put something in the chat because I know we're running um, out of time, so I've just put something in there. So basically um, the Commonwealth's position remains that um, access to PPE uh, through national stockpile is not a first um, port of call but a last resort, and they their position is pretty much that um, fit testing is uh, not uh, their responsibility to, to support. It's a private matter, a workforce employer matter. Um, I think at the, at the PHN, our view is probably a little bit different to that and we see it more as a sort of a public health matter. So what we've been doing while we advocate on that, and I know RACGP are advocating hard on this as well, um, we're talking to the local health services that have a um, have been doing a fair bit of fit testing through a Victorian government scheme. 
And we found out that quite a few of them have been doing fit testing for local practices. So we're gathering information to try to give a good picture about what might be available at the local level. It looks like it's going to be local um, solutions, at least for now. Um, we're talking to Barwon Health later on today to um, see what might be possible there. And we're also talking to Ballarat um, Health and have been talking to a few of the others. So um, nothing uh, really concrete, I'm sorry, but uh, we're working on ways to get fit testing for you uh, in the most sort of effective ways possible. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. And I'll, I'll wrap up in about one minute, I reckon. Um, so with vaccinations, we're seeing practices that um, an acceleration of the onboarding of practices coming on with extra Pfizer. We've been able to bring one group forward um, to the 13th of September and we're waiting some further confirmation from the Commonwealth to bring the remaining practices on board. So we'll be in touch with those practices as soon as, as soon as we have that info. Practices currently administering Pfizer can request an increase. We don't have timelines on when practices will receive that, but we're communicating to practices as soon as we get any information. Um, regarding off-site off vaccinations, the most recent GP provider bulletin has guidance on what factors to consider in establishing different models, such as pop-up or drive-through models. So this aligns really nicely with the work that we're starting to do now um, with vulnerable populations as more um, Pfizer get, comes into the general practice space. Um, just a quick update regarding um, aged care. As Kate mentioned, we've had some ISOS hubs, international SOS hubs in Geelong and, and Ballarat, and also doing in-reach um, across the region. So we've seen the average um, a week ago on the 18th of um, August, the average across the region was 77.5% of staff were vaccinated with one and or one and two doses. It's now moved up to 82%. I've put the split there between our two, re our two regions, but we're certainly looking at um, that increasing um, in, you know, over the last week and into the next few weeks. Uh, we don't have any other info on the uh, no-fault COVID-19 scheme yet, other than what we've heard in the media. There is a, a link to a webpage there from the Commonwealth. There's um, no info on that yet, but it does start on the 6th of September. And as you know, it can be backdated. Um, next slide, thanks for being, uh, Jeff. Thank you, um, Gemma. Um, just a quick reminder about our EAP scheme. Um, just, uh, yeah, the phone number and the number to quote. And also we have plenty of PPE in stock. And last slide, Gemma. Thanks. So, and finally, um, a, a piece of work that we've been working on over the last month or so to, to raise awareness and to celebrate the work of general practice in our region, we're about to launch our thank you campaign with the aim of raising awareness and to celebrate the hard work of general practice. The ads will be launched soon uh, across the region. And again, just want to thank everybody who've um, sent their photos in and, and, and uh, part of the uh, process. So that is it. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Um, you know what the QR code's all about. It's uh, scanning the QR code with your mobile phone, if you can. Um, evaluate us. There's uh, heaps happening in this session. We've called all those questions in the chat. Um, do uh, use the evaluation to also um, submit questions um, to uh, Jane and Jess, who will be with us next week. So we're going to continue the conversation and deepen it around uh, consent and any other questions that you might have about the vaccine and vaccine schedules. So uh, there's been a few responses in the chat as well but we'll make sure we address any of those questions um at the head of next week um thanks to karen and lee for that um uh you know i guess uh you know messaging around um home in the hospital as being a real take-home for today and uh and really some of those stories about um 
sick patients that Karen describes who uh, feared calling triple O because there wasn't anyone to look after their kids. I think that's uh, a really um, powerful one as part of your, um, you know, comms uh, going forward. Again, let's kind of maybe come back to that a bit next week. So um, take care out there, everyone. Um, all the best for the week and we'll, we'll see you all again uh, same time next week. And uh, yes, thank you for everything you do. Um, take care. This series was brought to you by the West Vic PHN. I'm Bianca Forrester and I'm the GP facilitator for this series. I'd like to acknowledge the work of Gemma Misbach, Natalie Love, Fiona Quigley, Matt Dixon and Kate Graham for their work in coordination, support and contribution to this series. These audio catch-ups are produced by Gemma Misbach, myself and Jade Buller. Come along and join the discussions on Thursday mornings at 7.30am via Zoom. You can register on the West Vic PHN website by looking up Project Echo COVID-19. All sessions are RACGP and ACRAM accredited as a time-based activity and CPD certificates are available for non-GP participants. Thanks for listening and join us again next time.